Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, October 7th, we're studying Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 1 to 24. What do two eagles, the top of a cedar tree, and a vine have to do with the people of God in the days of Ezekiel the prophet? The Lord tells Ezekiel a riddle and its explanation and makes a promise of his own in today's text. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hello, Pastor Apple. Great to be with you this morning. As we get started, Pastor Hill, let's talk a little bit of context. First, just about Ezekiel, the prophet, anything that has to do with his ministry that's going to help us. I know we're going to need to do a lot of historical background in this text, but just about the the prophet himself. Is there anything we should know about him as we approach what we've got today? The main thing for us to remember about Ezekiel, the prophet, is that uh, he has his prophetic ministry taking place during the exilic period where... um, We have seen God's people carried away from Judah into exile in Babylon. It's important for us to remember that that's not a singular event, but that it's an event that happens in waves. And Ezekiel was actually taken into captivity in Babylon in 597 BC, roughly 10 years before the final fall of Jerusalem. In 597, there was a wave of of destruction at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And then again, he comes back 10 years later and finishes the job. So Ezekiel finds himself on the leading edge, I suppose we'd say, of those who have been taken into exile. And he preaches um, and prophesies from the midst of Babylon about the events that are taking place during that intervening 10 years, as well as uh, the reason that God had seen fit to bring them into exile, and as well as the future hope of a return finally to the land and a restoration. So Ezekiel is unique and interesting in the fact that um, he was in exile before the final destruction was taking place and could see what was happening from that land, looking back at his homeland uh, from that perspective. Now, the text that we've got today, I mentioned this in the introduction, the Lord calls it either a riddle or a parable. What What is this form of text that we're going to look at, and why is the historical background going to be so important as we jump into chapter 17? Yes, yeah, so indeed, it is a parable or a riddle, and the Lord himself identifies it as such in the opening words, where he does say that this son of man, Ezekiel, needs to propound a riddle or speak a parable to the people. But if we want to be even a little more specific as to what kind of riddle or parable it is, we would call this an allegory. An allegory in literature is when you have a story that corresponds to events and figures in real life. And they tend to line up on more of a one-to-one basis than maybe some of the parables of Jesus might. Sometimes um, we're actually warned not to allegorize Jesus' parables or make sure that every little detail corresponds to some little detail in reality. But this particular parable really does line up on a one-for-one basis with the historical realities that had just taken place, that Ezekiel himself had witnessed, and a few that were to come. So with that in mind, as, as we look at this riddle, parable, allegory, 
Should we should we start by reading the text? Should we do the historical overview first? Which which is going to be more helpful for us? You know, honestly, I think we should probably have a bit of a review of the history first. Um, there's actually a rhetorical question that we'll come to later in the text where the Lord asks, do you not know what these things mean? And, you know, when I read it the first time through in preparation for today, I, I had to answer in the affirmative. I didn't know what those things meant at my first read and had to brush up on some history. So I think that'll be helpful. For I hate it when that too. happens. Jesus asks a question. Don't you understand? Uh, not yet, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So, so help us with some of that history then. What, what's the historical background that's going on in Judah that we need to know that's going to help us with chapter 17 of Ezekiel? Right. The history that's important for us today is history that we get straight out of the Old Testament, and it comes to us in the books of Second Kings and Second Chronicles. We can find the details of this story in either Second Kings chapters 22 through 25 or Second Chronicles chapters 34 through 36. And this gets us into the tail end history of the southern kingdom of Judah and the events that led ultimately to its demise. These sections of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles begin with uh, King Josiah, who we remember was a righteous king. Josiah was the young boy who became king and reigned over Judah for 31 years. You'll remember that he was the one who found the book of the law in the temple during the restoration project and had it read publicly and, and tore his garments and and repented at, uh, on behalf of the people because of the way that they had not been living at all in accordance with the law of the Lord. What ends up happening there is that the Lord sees Josiah's repentance and his purity of heart, and he declares that Josiah will not be the one to see the exile of the people of Judah. Um, they, they won't see that punishment that the Lord is going to bring on in Josiah's day. Josiah ends up going uh, into a battle with the pharaoh of Egypt at that time. Remember, Egypt is, of course, to the south and the west of, of Judah. And, of course, to the north and the east, we have the great kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon and later on Persia. And Israel finds itself in the middle of those two places and is often a, a place that's contended over by these major world powers. So Pharaoh Necho ends up coming and pushing up into this area and kills King Josiah in a battle uh, in Megiddo. So then after Josiah, we have Jehoahaz, which is his son. He reigns for three months. And this begins a trend of all of the kings after Josiah, where the books of Second Kings and Second Chronicles place a verdict on them that says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's going to be universally true for all of these continuing kings. So you have Josiah, then Jehoahaz, who is there for only three months. The same pharaoh that killed Josiah ends up putting him in bonds, it says. Apparently he was not pleased with Jehoahaz reigning and instead installs Jehoahaz's brother, who is named Eliakim, to be king. He imposes a tribute upon Judah, and he goes so far as to even rename Eliakim as Jehoiakim. So we can see now that Judah is really under the regional power of, of Egypt here, so much so that the pharaoh of Egypt is able to rename the kings of Judah as a sign of the power that he has over Judah and, and whoever happens to be sitting on that throne. Jehoiakim is there for 11 years, and he faithfully pays the tribute to Egypt that Pharaoh Necho had levied against the land. And then what we see happening is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon rises to power up to the north and to the east and um, decides that he has uh, aspirations over this land of Judah and rises to become the 
power in the place of Egypt over, over Judah at this time. So Nebuchadnezzar arises in the days of Jehoiakim. After Jehoiakim dies, we end up with another king here, and there are a couple of different pronunciations I've heard. Do you pronounce this Jehoiachin or Jehoiakin? What what have we been going with? Here? I I think I've said both <laughs> over the course of these prophets. Uh, so either either yeah, Jehoiachin sometimes I think is helpful to say it that way, just so you catch the the spelling is different. But either one I've I've heard and probably used both over the course of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Well, I've always been a Jehoiachin guy, so I guess we'll stick with that, that today. Works. Um, Jehoiachin is um, reigning now after Jehoiakim. Remember, the power has shifted from Egypt to Babylon, and Jehoiachin reigns again only three months. But in those three months, he's done what's evil in the sight of the Lord, it tells us. And during this time, Nebuchadnezzar comes and attacks Jerusalem in the year 597 BC. And this is the time when Jehoiachin, as well as Ezekiel, Many of the mighty soldiers in the land, the nobles of the land, are taken out of Jerusalem and Judah and carried away into exile into Babylon. And this is how Ezekiel himself ends up in Babylon. And it tells us that at this time, uh, the treasures of the temple and the king's palace are carried off into Babylon, and only the poorest people in the land remain after that attack. And this is the way that it would go in the ancient world. Uh, A regional power would come, they would overthrow the local government or push out the other regional power that they were vying uh, against for territory and would take the best of that land into their own their own land themselves um, in order to really not only keep those people from leading their own land, but also to, I suppose, um, benefit from the wisdom and um, abilities that they could bring with them to their homeland. And, and they would leave somebody behind and install them. So here, Jehoiachin goes into exile uh, with with Ezekiel, and finally, uh, Nebuchadnezzar installs a man named Mataniah, which is actually Jehoiachin's uncle. So he's within the royal uh, sphere, but wouldn't be the most natural heir to the throne. And Mataniah then is renamed by um, Nebuchadnezzar as Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is going to be the last major figure that we're going to have in the history of Judah here. Zedekiah is going to reign for 11 years. He's also going to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. But Zedekiah makes a military um, decision that will be something that's spoken of in this allegory today. Zedekiah chooses that he's going to rebel against Babylon, seek a military alliance with Egypt, and ultimately that's going to provoke the anger of Babylon. Egypt's alliance is going to prove to be pretty ineffective in helping Judah, And then in 587 BC, 10 years after Jehoiachin is carried away, Nebuchadnezzar once again lays siege to Jerusalem. And this time he lays waste to the temple, the city completely destroying it and raising it to the ground. And the Babylonians murder Zedekiah's children before his very eyes and then gouge those eyes out so that it would be the last thing he ever saw. Zedekiah is led away in chains into Babylon. He will live there until his death in prison. And all that remain behind in the land are the very poorest of the Judahites. And that is the bitter end of what happens in Judah and Jerusalem here. And the carrying away into the Babylonian exile is complete. Babylon places a governor over Judah. But the one note of hope that we have here is that Jehoiachin, who 10 years ago had been taken away, is still living in in Babylon. And ultimately, we will find that when another king arises in Babylon, 
in place of Nebuchadnezzar, a man named Evil Merodach. He has mercy upon Jehoiachin, releases him from prison, gives him a regular allowance above the allowance of any other kings that had been carried away from other lands. And he lives out his days in relative peace and, and prosperity there in Babylon. That's a lot of history, and it's hard to keep straight. But uh, I think the only way we're going to make any headway in our text today is to at least have have gone over it. No, it's it's very helpful, a great reminder, because this history, it does keep coming up time and time again. It was true in Jeremiah, it's true in Ezekiel, and particularly in today's text, and going all the way back to Josiah and seeing how from that righteous king, you do have this downfall of the following four that continue to do evil in the sight of the Lord, and all of the ins and outs the ways that the the political world around Israel you know relates to this is a helpful reminder of of those various events that you mentioned who are going to be the main players that we're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 17 well the main players that we're going to have here really is going to be Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah probably i would say and also another pharaoh who is going to be alive during the time that that Zedekiah makes his failed military alliance. That's uh, Pharaoh Hophra, who's in Egypt at that time, a different Pharaoh, one of them after Necho. Um, But really, this is going to center mostly upon the decisions that Zedekiah makes after he has been installed as king and has entered into a particular arrangement of government underneath Babylon. And what we'll see is Zedekiah is, in, in his act of making this alliance with Egypt, he's not just making a political move or a military move, but he's actually rebelling against an order that the Lord had placed over top of Judah for his own purposes at this time. All right. So let's let's begin to read here in Ezekiel 17. How far do you wanna how far do you want to go, Pastor Hill? Well I think we could either read just the allegory or the allegory and its um, interpretation. And maybe we should read them together, okay. um, which would be verses 1 through 18. All right. So Ezekiel 17, verses 1 to 18 to get us started. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel and say, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put up boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it is sprouted? Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, 
and took her king and her princes, and brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble, and not lift itself up, and keep his covenant, that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath and breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. All right, that takes us through verse 18, Pastor Hill. So the, the allegory itself is verses 1 through 10. The Lord gives explanation in verses 11 through 18. In terms of the allegory, help us to identify the figures. We've got eagles, we've got a twig, we've got vine. What's what's going on here? Yeah, it's very difficult to keep straight, so much so that um, I know our listeners can't see it, but you can. When I sent some notes to you, I, uh, I highlighted in different colors throughout the allegory what's referring to whom. And and that's almost necessary to, to keep in mind who who is what and who's doing what in this allegory. Well, the first thing I think that jumps out at us is the major image that we have is that mighty kings are depicted as eagles here. And not only is the eagle a power of strength and might, I mean, it's in our, our nation's seal, even an eagle with, you know, in one hand, uh, olive branch and in the other, in the other claw um, arrows to, to signify, you know, the might of our nation can be used for peace or war. Here, these eagles are shown uh, with great wings and long pinions, one of them, and the other one with great wings and much plumage. I, I just picture something kind of between an eagle and a peacock. Okay. They, um, <laughs> they, as kings do, show off and, and strut their colors and stuff and their might in order to um, strike fear in the hearts of, of certain people that they must be obeyed and followed. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first great eagle that we see, the one with great wings and long pinions, is clearly Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, the one under whom Zedekiah is placed in a relationship of, of paying tribute from Judah to Babylon because of, of the situation that had arisen there with, with Babylon as the, the major regional power. Later on, that other great eagle is going to be Pharaoh Hophra of Egypt, the one who is in power at the time of Zedekiah, who is going to be the one that Zedekiah will seek this type of military arrangement with in order to defend against Zedekiah's planned you know resistance of Babylon. So we've got the first eagle, this is Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the second eagle who shows up in verse 7, that's Hophra, Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, the first part of this riddle in verses 1 through 6 deals with what Nebuchadnezzar does as this great eagle. He takes part of the top of a cedar of Lebanon, breaks that off, carries it away, and then plants a seed. Maybe the first thing to deal with is, is the matter of Lebanon. Why is Lebanon mentioned here if we're talking about Judah? Right. This can clearly throw us off. Um, The Lebanon that's spoken of in the allegory is not actually Lebanon, the country. Lebanon is symbolic of Jerusalem and Judah itself, which at first we would say makes absolutely no sense 
However, we have to stop and understand that Lebanon's pride were its cedar trees. In fact, it's still on the Lebanese national flag today that a cedar tree adorns it. And if we remember back to the cedars of Lebanon, we will remember that in the construction of the temple, it is the cedars of Lebanon that are sent down and used in the construction of the temple because of their high quality, their beauty. It was the best of the best. So, um, you know, I know, I guess some people have different opinions, but, you know, people talk about German engineered vehicles as just the pinnacle of the auto market or something. Um, the cedars of Lebanon are the pinnacle of, of glory when it comes to building something that is, is going to withstand and be something amazing. So Lebanon here, and you just kind of have to trust when you read it the first time, doesn't refer to Lebanon, but refers to Judah. And it becomes clear later on in those other verses we read that indeed we are speaking of, of Judah. Now, the topmost of this uh, cedar of Lebanon is going to refer to the one at the pinnacle of the Judahite society, which is going to be the king. And at the topmost of, of the society at this point, when, when the society is still something that's not been cut down or, or fully attacked, is going to be Jehoiakim, is going to be the one that, at, that is at the top of the cedar. So um, he is, excuse me, Jehoiachin, excuse me, Chin, not Kim. Jehoiachin is the top of the cedar. So in comes this great eagle. He sees the mighty uh, cedar of Lebanon and he breaks off the very top, carries it into the land of trade, sets it in a city of merchants. All this speaking of the carrying away of the king into Babylon in that first wave of deportations. It takes place in 597 BC. Um, and it doesn't really tell us what happens to the topmost of the young twigs here, uh, other than that it's carried away. That's right. Now, next we see that he goes and takes the seed of the land. The seed, the, the eagle returns, it sounds like, takes the seed of the land, not the seed of the tree even, just some sort of seed of the land of Lebanon, symbolic here of Judah, and plants that seed in fertile soil beside abundant waters. And then later on it says it's going to be like a willow twig. Willow twigs, twigs grow up very quickly if they're planted in the right conditions. Um, and that seed is going to sprout, and it's not going to become another mighty cedar. Instead, it's going to become a low-spreading vine. So we have a contrast between the mighty cedar that was and the low-spreading vine that is now. Now, both are alive. Both are putting out branches and boughs in their proper time. But the image is, you know, the glory of, of what was going on under Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin is now going to be contrasted with Zedekiah's reign. That Zedekiah's reign is purposefully going to be something that is low and controlled and, um, and bound, whereas Jehoiachin's was something that stood up on its own. Okay, so in the first, what, the first seven, no, six verses, excuse me, we really have a, a lot of a picture of what happens in 597, 598 BC, where Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he takes Jehoiachin into exile, that's the break, that's the eagle who breaks off the top of the cedar and takes it into the land of trade. He puts in Jehoiachin's place Zedekiah, that's the seed of the land planted in fertile soil. And although we know from, you know, from history and from other places in the scripture that this was not a pleasant thing for the people of Israel, generally speaking, in these first six verses, it sounds like a, 
I don't know if a positive experience is quite the right way of, of phrasing it, but what's going on here seems decent in the sense that the, the topmost of the cedar tree is broken off and it's taken to a land of trade and a city of merchants. That's not the worst thing that could happen. And the seed of the land gets fertile soil, abundant waters, and begins to grow. That too is not the, the worst thing that, that happens. So we don't have the, I guess, the fullness of God's judgment. And even perhaps a bit surprising to us is the fact that Babylon almost seems dep- depicted positively here. Yeah. And that is difficult for us to think about during this this period of the exile is that Babylon at this time is the one unwittingly, of course, doing the will of the Lord by bringing chastisement and punishment uh, to Judah. And what we see in this arrangement that's being made is that the kingly line is allowed to continue in Jerusalem, although, you know, it's a kingly line that's been installed by foreign powers and names have been changed. There is a king reigning in Jerusalem at this time. And it's as if the Lord is holding back the fullness of his wrath and anger by allowing the the line to continue as as this low-spreading vine rather than a lofty tree, but it's, it's alive nevertheless. And, and he does that by placing Judah in this sort of arrangement that could have continued on had Zedekiah not rebelled conceivably mm-hmm. and, and allowed them not to be completely and utterly destroyed. Mm-hmm. So... I think what's going to be interesting here is that Babylon is being used for the Lord's purposes at this point, even though Nebuchadnezzar is not wittingly um, executing the plans of the Lord. I'm reminded a little bit, just by the way that this is described, of some of the preaching of Jeremiah to Zedekiah, and the or not the exiles, but the people who are still there in Judah, how during that reign of King Zedekiah, you know, he urged them to be obedient to Babylon, ultimately to surrender to Babylon when judgment, you know, he, he was proclaiming, it is going to come, you just should surrender and you'll save your lives. But just the way that the, the more positive description of Babylon is offered here is a reminder that like you were saying, this is the Lord at work through Babylon, even if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't realize it. The Lord is at work ultimately to do what is right for his people, to call them to repentance and to faith in him. As we're going to see, that doesn't that doesn't quite happen. But I do think that positive description largely of Babylon here is a reminder of some of that. So we need to we need to take our break. We're gonna go to the short break here. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. Talking Ezekiel 17 with Pastor Nate Hill. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 7th. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 1 to 24 with Pastor Nate Hill. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we were looking at the first part, the allegory itself. We've got the first eagle, Nebuchadnezzar, who has broken off the top part of the cedar. That's Jehoiachin. 
taken him into exile. Nebuchadnezzar has planted the seed, that's Zedekiah, in the land, and that land that that seed has grown into not a mighty tree, but a vine. It's healthy at this point, putting out branches. But then in verse 7, we meet another eagle, and this eagle begins to attract the attention of the vine, Zedekiah. What's going on in verses 7 and 8? Yeah, in verses 7 and 8 now, we see the turn of Zedekiah towards Egypt for help in this arrangement. Now, you would think, knowing the history of God's people with Egypt, it might not be the most natural place to turn for help. Um, right. And and I don't I don't know if that's something we should be reading into here, but it's certainly something that I would see that that Egypt is generally not the friend of God's people in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, he thinks it's going to be expedient to make this military alliance with Egypt and have their backing supposedly when he rebels against Babylon, seeking to either kind of allow Judah to stand on its own two feet again, or more likely to just return to the days where Egypt is the regional power under whom Judah has to live and exist. For some reason, that seems to have been preferable um, to Zedekiah at this time. So um, we see the vine then, which is Zedekiah, bends its roots toward him, sort of like uh, we see certain plants that track the movement of the sun or track where they believe they're going to receive nourishment from. This, this vine bends its roots there, shoots forth the branches from the bed where it was planted, which is Babylon. And now he believes that this help is going to come from, from Egypt as well. Mm-hmm. Which, I, you know, when you hear that, you think, well, I guess that's just a tactical decision he made and it's... Too bad that that turned out that way. But we're going to find out in the the verses later that this is uh, a theological decision that he's made as well as just a geopolitical decision. That's right. I mean, you just can't forget that when it comes to the kings of of God's people in the Old Testament, that, you know, when they start to try to play politics, when they try to—I've phrased it like this before, you know, stick their finger in the wind and try to figure out which major power is going to win and then pick that side— it just it never works out for them, and and Zedekiah plays that game, and that's the game that's being described here, and it goes, it's a complete disaster for him compared to all the other kings. Particularly, it's a complete disaster. So this is where the Lord starts asking questions. Well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to this vine that that goes away from the bed that it was planted in and and goes for this this seemingly greener pastures? What what does the Lord begin to to say? Yeah. So these rhetorical questions come. Uh, do you do you not know what these things mean, which we've talked about already, and we're, we're starting to fill in the meaning? Um, but later on, he asks other questions like, will he thrive? Will this vine thrive when he is turned away from the place of nourishment that he's been put in on the empty hope of somehow receiving some sort of better arrangement? Then it says, can one escape who does such things? Calling out to um, the idea of justice, that the Lord will not let him escape after making this type of a decision. And then finally, that third question in verse 15 really brings it full circle. He says, can he, Zedekiah, break the covenant and yet escape? You can't break God's covenant and escape the consequences. That's kind of, I think, the temptation that we all face uh, in our own lives when it comes to sin. We know the, the we know the rules. We know God's law. We say, well, I can just break it anyway, and there won't be any kind of consequences whatsoever. And it may feel like that works for a while, but it catches up to us in the end. Now, thanks be to God, of course, for the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ and 
um, there is the escape from the consequences of the breaking of the covenant. But but here in this very practical Old Testament language, um, Zedekiah has left the covenant that was made. He's broken that covenant not only with Babylon, but really with God as well. And now Zedekiah's goose is cooked. That's that's putting it mildly. That's right. Yeah, his his goose is cooked for sure. I mean, he, you know, it, Zedekiah. We we talked about him at length in, in our study of Jeremiah. On the one hand, you you almost feel sorry for him because sometimes he seems like he's going to get it, but he just he never he never does because he never puts his trust in Yahweh, which always leads him then to make the wrong decisions, especially when it comes to Babylon. He thinks he's going to get away with rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, which is, which as you said, and I'd like to hear more about this, that that's really a, a rebellion against the Lord. How, how does that work? What's the theological connection? What's, what do we see in, in this part of the text that indicates that his breaking of the oath he made to Nebuchadnezzar is actually a, a breaking of the oath to the Lord? Yeah, so the the section that we just read begins to get at it, but really that point comes in our next section, where beginning at verse 19, I know we'll read this in a second, but the turn is that the Lord begins to speak of the oath, not only as the oath that you made with Babylon, but the Lord speaks of the oath as my oath that he, Zedekiah, despised. So maybe that's a good time for us now to kind of turn towards 19 through 21, and uh, we can comment on that. All right, so we're in Jeremiah 17 now, verses 19 to 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised, and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now that's the next three verses. That, and that really kind of wraps up this section. Verses 22 through 24 of the chapter are going to be Related in imagery, but there's going to be a pretty major turn that happens in those verses. So in these in these verses, this is where we get very clear the connection that what Zedekiah did in rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar was more than a rebellion against an earthly king. This was a rebellion against the heavenly king. How is that so, Pastor Hill? Right. So, so Zedekiah will certainly die in Babylon but not only because of the political power of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but because it is the sentence of God's judgment upon him for breaking the covenant that had been made. Now, we can think of this in a couple of ways. The first is um, the Bible speaks about the taking of oaths, and the taking of oaths is actually a pretty controversial matter amongst certain Christians. There are certain Christians out there that won't take any oath whatsoever, won't serve on a jury or be a witness in a trial, um, because of uh, an interpretation of James chapter 5, which happens to have been read a, a few weeks ago in the three-year series. Um, but, you know, the, the Lord speaks about oaths in a number of places because when you take an oath, you take an oath upon something, right? You take an oath upon the name of something, um, and you invoke that, that imagery, that person, in order to lend credence to what you speak. Now, ultimately... Luther comes down on the idea of oaths as saying that the taking of any oath is not necessarily the problem. The, the problem with the taking of oaths is that people tend to take oaths to lend credence to false witness or false speech or lies. Um, but 
here with this oath, I think one of the things we can think of at that time is who would Zedekiah have sworn by that he would remain in this arrangement of kind of being a vassal state to Babylon? Well, would Nebuchadnezzar have had um, him swear on the the gods of, of Babylon? Well, maybe that might have been a part of the ceremony. But when you have someone swear an oath, you don't have them swear an oath on what you believe is holy. You have them swear an oath on what they themselves believe is holy. And and I think that's where it comes, that he must have, uh, by necessity, sworn that he would abide in this arrangement upon the name of Yahweh. Um, And that's how how he really ends up crossing the line. So I, I think that that makes sense. Textually speaking here in Ezekiel 17, you know, that this oath that he despised would have been the oath that he swore of loyalty to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, and likely in the name of Yahweh, his God. I, I do wonder just, and this is, you know, giving some background from the book of Jeremiah, that what Zedekiah does in relation to that particular oath that he would have sworn to Nebuchadnezzar is meant to be a, a picture of really the whole of Zedekiah's reign, that the entirety of his, of his reign, as you mentioned from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles both, is characterized by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, such, such that the punishment that Zedekiah receives that's depicted in this allegory isn't only for the fact that he broke the oath that he made with Nebuchadnezzar that was made on the Lord's name, but it's, it's a larger matter of of ultimately, I would say, idolatry in general. What do you think, Pastor Hill? Well, absolutely. It's the prime sin, really, of the Old Testament. And you can't read anything in the Old Testament, really. You can't hardly get past a page without understanding that it's the prime temptation of God's people. It's the prime manifestation of sin. And of course, we know this catechetically, um, that if the, the first commandment is something that we take our eyes off of and allow uh, other idols to take the place of, of the Lord God, then we're quickly on the road to breaking the others. And in fact, we can't break one of the others without having first uh, broken the first commandment and creating some sort of an idol in our hearts. But here we see it in its grossest form of people um, going after the other deities. And this is why it was helpful actually to read um, about the reforms of Josiah in preparation for today too, because in the days of Josiah, it chronicles not only the fact that Josiah was righteous and and mourned over his people's sin, but the way that Josiah painstakingly and violently overthrows the the tentacles of false worship that had manifested themselves. Uh, the priests of the false idols are slain. The uh, the high places are razed and and burned. Um, Josiah, we think of him as this innocent little boy king who, you know, reads the Bible and has faith like a child, which I suppose is true, but he's also, you know, a dread, um, a dread, zealous warrior, in a sense, of, of putting away that false worship. So Zedekiah and all of those who came after him are just such a contrast to Josiah and who he was, um, and, and that kind of illustrates some of that issue. In these verses, the other big change, I suppose, or maybe not change, but what is made clear is that everything that's been going on in the allegory, in the history that we've been talking about, this is the Lord at work. Over and over again in these three verses, it's the Lord saying, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And and that's something we've seen, and it, it continues to be significant here in Ezekiel 17. Right. And it's important, too, for us to remember at what point Ezekiel is relaying this 
particular prophetic utterance to the people. Um, he is relaying this after um, he's been carried away in 597, of course, but before the events of 586. So he is foretelling this death sentence upon Zedekiah for breaking the covenant, but he's foretelling it before um, Babylon has come back and, and placed the siege mounds up against Jerusalem and brought all of this disaster. So um, not only is is this telling accurately of what's going to happen in the future, but I mean, Zedekiah, I suppose, must be, be faced with a certain amount of dread at the fact that this sentence of death has been been placed upon him. So yeah, it's interesting, I think, in, in reading this to understand that some of what is spoken of here in this parable and its explanation actually lay slightly in the future from the day which it was spoken. That's right. And and Jeremiah, back in Jerusalem with King Zedekiah, is telling Zedekiah, not maybe in the same imagery that you get in the book of Ezekiel, but he's telling Zedekiah the same thing, that Babylon is going to come, destruction is coming. The, the tragedy of what happens to Zedekiah is that he refuses that word of the Lord from Jeremiah and, and chooses this destruction for himself by doing precisely what Ezekiel says he's going to do. But the, you know, these verses really pinpoint the fact that what happens to Zedekiah and to the, the people as a whole isn't simply Babylon happens to be mad at you that day, but this is the Lord executing his judgment upon Zedekiah as the king and upon the people as a whole. Right, absolutely. And it, it's not, history is not aimless. And I think that's one of the the major lies that we tell ourselves as well, you know, you win some, you lose some. Um, but but it's the Lord himself who pulls the strings in, in history. Now, um, we can take a certain amount of comfort in that. Um, but we also should take have a certain amount of humility in that too. Um, because sometimes when we believe that our cause is just perhaps um, the Lord might have a different verdict on on certain things. Mm. So um, whatever the Lord sees fit is is going to come to pass. And our role is to um, to conform ourselves to the will of the Lord in this area, repent of our sins, place our faith in him, and ultimately trust in, in his ultimate uh, kingdom, which to us is invisible rather than the kingdoms uh, of this world. One of the things that we, we should pick out before we move on is just this, you shall know that I am the Lord phrase. We hear this in Ezekiel a lot. This He repeats this over and over again. The Lord wants people to know who he is. How does what happens to Zedekiah go toward that goal? Well, I mean, you would presume that if the king of Israel is ultimately uh, humiliated, blinded, carried off into exile, and dies in prison, uh, that that might have some implications for that man's God. Uh, that, that it might mean Israel's God must be awfully weak if Babylon overtakes it. That's the way people naturally thought. The, the nation with the mightier gods de- defeats the nations with the weaker gods. And people, you assumed that most people had this polytheistic outlook on things. And that's just kind of how the ancient world worked. But by Yahweh speaking this ahead of time, being clear that these things that will certainly come are his plan and are at his hand, um, then it will bring glory to the Lord, even when his own uh, nominal king uh, is the one that's overtaken and overthrown. So the the ability to turn world events is something that brings uh, the Lord glory and, and renown in the world. 
And not only does he, well, he turns the world events and he does so for a specific purpose. And I really think that's how these last three verses of this chapter are going to relate, that in in all of this, the Lord is going to remain active and he's even going to remain active to keep his promise. So we're going to pick up the rest of the chapter. We're now getting Ezekiel 17 verses 22 to 24. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. That's the end of our text for today. That was Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24. So, Pastor Hill, we've got the same imagery here. We've, we've got the breaking off of a twig from a, a lofty cedar, but now the Lord says, I'm going to do this myself. And there's some details in here that, that indicate that we're not only... And maybe not, I'd like to hear what you think, maybe not even at all. I don't think, we're not only talking about things that happened 500, 600 years BC, but we're talking about something much farther into the future. What Help us into these verses. Yeah, so we are decisively turning away from the events that we've discussed here, and, and that's pretty clear in the text, but we are also returning to the same cedar tree that we really quickly left behind, it seems, back in, I suppose that was verse four or so. Now, What's interesting, too, that jumps out at me is what is taken from the cedar tree in the first place is called a twig. Now, what we're talking about here in verse 22 that's going to be taken from the lofty top of the cedar is a sprig. You got a twig and a sprig, and um, I'm no horticulturist, but to <laughs> me, those uh, imply different things. A twig is, you know, just kind of woody and, and dead. It's a little stick. It's, um, it's something to help start a fire, a twig is. But the sprig has life in it. It's something to be planted and to flourish there from there on. So I think there's significance in the way each are, are described. Um, so you go back to the cedar, the, the thing that uh, speaks to us of the glory of, of Judah and even the kingly line there. And some, some sprig is taken there and it's planted not down low, but it's planted on a high and lofty mountain. So here we have not this image we had earlier of the tree becoming a low vine where we're seeing a demotion, but we're seeing the sprig from this one tree being brought to a high place, visible to all, and planted there. It's a it's an image of elevation. I'm sure, you know, all the, the listeners are probably understanding by now that as we've turned away from the events of Ezekiel's day, we're speaking of the day that is to come from Ezekiel's point of view. And these are all messianic prophecies of the Christ who is to come, and in our day we can say certainly has come. And again, what what do we think of the high place in which this this little sprig is planted? Well, of course, it's it's going to be ultimately in, in Judah and in Israel, um, in Jerusalem even. And um, the tender nature of the, the sprig can perhaps remind us, of course, of the incarnation of, of Christ and, and his nativity. And as he grows in stature and uh, grows up into his, his fullness, uh, we see 
the fruits of his ministry and his, his three years of ministry amongst the people. And finally, we'll see that tree manifest on the top of, of a mountain, mountain of, of Calvary, where he doesn't just spread out the, the boughs of the tree, but spreads out his own arms in sacrifice for us there. Um, so I think we see a lot of these images where the tree that was the noble cedar um, becomes a new tree, and ultimately we can even see that the fruits of that tree come from uh, the tree of the cross upon which Christ has has paid for our sins. Yeah, I mean this is this is where you get the the very clear connection to Jesus, and I think that you know as you were pointing out the some of the differences in the language that you have here compared to what you get in the early part of the chapter that what we're being told about here is is bigger than, say, you know, what you mentioned earlier, that Jehoiachin does get released from prison it, when he's there in Babylon eventually after Nebuchadnezzar is gone. But what's described here is bigger than that. Uh, what's described here is is bigger than the return from exile that you have under Ezra and Nehemiah, because in those cases, the the return, it's just, it's never as glorious as it was before, that that the words that we've got here in, at the end of Ezekiel 17, they're, they're begging for something bigger than either of those things, or anything in between, until you get to Jesus. And I mean, there's, oh, there's, well, we've got about five minutes, so there's, there's plenty we can talk about. Let's just make sure we get everything. So you've got Jesus here in his incarnation, ultimately through his crucifixion. There's this tree that's going to provide a home to everyone. So it's going to be planted in Israel, but the the vision here goes beyond just the people of Israel to the whole world. Right. And specifically, it says under it, under this new, you know, uh, tree that's going to come, this new noble cedar, under it will dwell every kind of bird. Well, you know, okay, we're talking about birds again. We're back to uh, the bird language we had earlier in the chapter. Well, presumably, even underneath uh, the the branches of this tree will dwell mighty eagles, so to speak. Um, you know, it's not too hard to make a connection there to to the the three uh, wise men, the three kings um, from the Orient that come, and and many others who are people of high consequence in society who have found their dwelling underneath uh, the branches of this tree. Um, in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Now, we didn't talk about this earlier, but we there was a strong east wind that came uh, for that low-hanging um, vine and dries it up. Well, here is a picture not of the scorching east wind, but the cooling shade um, that we have underneath the noble cedar of Christ. So, yeah, there's just a, a great contrast here between the old order of kings and the king of kings who is to come. Back to Jehoiachin, you're right. We see a message of hope at the end of, of the story there when he's released from prison. But even if he had returned to the land, okay, fine. He sits back on the throne, and what is he? He's still one who's done evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah. Um, he didn't escape that verdict. It's not as if he was the messianic figure there um, in captivity in Babylon. So instead will come one, not who does evil in the sight of the Lord, but who fill, fulfills the law rather than breaks it, who... Um, accomplishes the fullness of the covenant rather than breaking the covenant, um, who comes and does that which Israel could never do, that which you and I could never do. And then in a, a beautiful closing here in chapter 17, we hear reversal language. You know, the Lord says, I make high the low tree, I bring low the high tree, this image of reversal. 
And what is it that we have in Christ if not the greatest reversal of our sins exchanged for his righteousness, our imperfection for his perfection? Um, and that's uh, a wonderful way to close this chapter out where we see uh, that it is within the Lord's capability to do all of that, even in response to a people who have so often um, turned away from him to other hopes. Pastor El, with just about a minute here, thinking through this chapter, we talked a lot of history this morning. You get Jesus here at the end very clearly. How do we take a chapter like Ezekiel 7? What do we do with it in our lives as Christians today? Well, as far as practical applications, um, I do think this is a springboard for us to dive back into the history of Judah and to really realize we probably neglect some of the Old Testament historical narrative and record. So we should dig back into those texts in uh, Kings and Chronicles and have a good good understanding of the history of, of Israel and Judah and understand that that's necessary knowledge for us to get the fullness of meaning out of the New Testament. If Jesus Christ really is Israel reduced to one, uh, shouldn't we want to know and embrace that history in a way that's deeper than we currently know? Um, we also ought to recognize that even today, the Lord can use unrighteous geopolitical powers for his own purposes. Now, I'm not going to opine on what specific ways the Lord is doing that, but but it's certainly within his power and might to use the Babylons of this world for his purposes. And finally, you know, we ought to step away from idolatry and place our hope in the same place that Ezekiel directs our hope, towards the hope of the coming and now has come Messiah Jesus Christ and we rest and enjoy the shade of that noble cedar, and we dwell in, in just the peace of the gospel that he has brought. Pastor Nate Hill is pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, comments on this series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app. You can send up to a 60-second message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.